Uh, today, special day, done with Romans, whoop, whoop, okay, um, and uh, starting a new series uh, called His Church, new series called His Church, and uh, it's going to be probably about 10 weeks uh, as we've kind of developed an outline and have a, an understanding of what the Lord would have us teach on. Uh, we're looking at, you know, about 10 weeks, plus or minus, but um, you can be setting your sights toward that end. Uh, really encourage you. Um, maybe you're, um, you know, a, a, not a frequent attendee of Calvary Chapel, um, but really encourage you, especially since the Lord has brought you here today for the first uh, message in this series. Uh, really encourage you to just purpose in your heart uh, to be here throughout this series, that you could have a full comprehension and understanding of what God wants his church uh, to be. Uh, so encourage you to do just that. We're excited about it. Um, it's been a fun thing to study for. And uh, you can have your Bibles ready. Uh, we'll have the scriptures on the screen. And uh, we don't really have like a, a main platform verse to jump off of today. We're going to uh, be searching through a few different verses as we get going this morning. Um, 200 years ago, the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, uh, whose name was Timothy Dwight, penned a hymn. And if you'll excuse a little bit of old English, uh, it went like this. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church, our blessed redeemer saved with his own precious blood. I love thy church, O God. The walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, engraven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers descend, to her my cares and toil be given, till toils and cares shall end. Beyond my highest joy I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. Now, if those words sound a little bit odd to you for reasons other than the Old English, um, they probably sound odd to most of us. It sounds a little weird, maybe a little over the top to, to sing such words about the church. Uh, you know, and if we were to sing, as Jesus said in John chapter 4, in, in a spirit of truth, would you be able, if those words came up on the screen this morning, would you be able to truthfully sing that, I prize the church. I love the church. Could you say this morning, I love your church, oh God. Or is the church something that you're a bit more indifferent towards? A little more ho-hum, a little more take it or leave it, a little more a necessary evil you've kind of got to go to. You know, uh, is that your heart? It's been my heart in the past. Um, you know, as we go into this series, we're going to be confronted on that type of a heart. Over the next 10 weeks or so, uh, we're going to be confronted. Uh, we're going to be made uncomfortable. We're going to hear things that are probably going to shock a lot of us. Uh, we're going to have our buttons pushed. Uh, and as I heard just a report from one of the home groups this week, a man in, in the in the, the home group just, just said, you know, I think this series is going to be good for us. You know, I know that we're going to be made uncomfortable. I know we're going to have our buttons pushed, but you know what? I think that's a good thing. I think we need to be confronted. We need to be uh, put into our, uh, out of our comfort zone. We need to be challenged. And, and so you will be. I, I am challenged as I study for this series. And, and so I encourage you to embrace that and go to the word as Acts 17.11. The Bereans were a people that they would test everything to the Bible. And we encourage you to do that. But that during this series, we would be shaped and conformed to God's heart and plan for his church. Rather than taking God's plan and heart for his church and molding it and fitting it into what we want it to be. Because that's totally backwards. Uh, and, and that it wouldn't be so during this series. So, uh, you know, this studying of the doctrine of the church has been called ecclesiology, all right? Learn a little vocab there. Uh, the study of the church, the studying of the gathering of God's people is so important. 
And I understand, some of you, you come in here today, and I've been where you're at, where even the word church conjures up a whole bunch of images uh, and aromas and memories that aren't good, that are hard. You know, uh, for some, just the word church, you know, you kind of go to that image on the screen of, you know, uh, some white building and, uh, and you have an elementary understanding of the church. You know, I went to Russell last night as I was studying. He came down and visited me, six-year-old uh, this February. And, and I said, Russell, what's the church? And he did a pretty good job, actually. I was pretty impressed. But his first thing that he said, though, was, it's that building that we go to down there. And I go, what do we do? We worship Jesus, we love each other, and we learn more about it. I'm like, Pretty good, you know, I give you a beat, you know, <laughs> but, um, but I just said, man, that's, that's the error, Russell, that we all think is that the church is a building and that that's it. We have these misconceptions of the church and these, you know, memories that come back or ideas of dull tradition, you know, growing up, you know, went to an old church and just the smell of the wood, you know, it was just this poignant memory, you know, and the smell of perfume and coffee and uh, their memory of being a little kid having to sit through long sermons. And it was just like, ah, you know, Um, it it wasn't good. It wasn't a good view of the church. It was faulty. Perhaps you think of the church and you think of it being full of hypocrites or of a group of people that have to dress a certain way and learn a whole new vocabulary, not even for theological purposes. Um, And it's through these misconceptions that the church has been sidelined, as if Terry Tate just came as a linebacker and just took us out at the knees. You know, that's what's happened to the church through poor biblical understanding, through American worldviews. It's really messed with God's heart for the church. The church has been pushed to the outside of public thought, public life, even Christian thought. In life, and this type of marginalization is really only like two steps behind uh, some of the most faithful in the church. Uh, some of us have the idea that once I've done my duty for the church on a small time frame, I'm done with it, and I can get on with my life. If I just volunteer as an usher or pack chairs at summer in the park, then I'm done, and I can like move on to freedom and bigger and better things and weekends off, you know. And uh, that's so often what uh, the American church's view is of the church. Not many people have a good working definition of the church. Might not even be nearly as good as my six-year-old boys, even if you grew up and you attended uh, the church. The early church was known to debate a lot of different things. They would debate the Trinity and how do we know there's a Trinity? And they would go to the word and they would fight and argue and stand firm on that there is a Trinity. There's one God with distinct persons within it, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And they'd stand firm on that doctrine. They'd stand firm on the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is fully God and fully man. God taking on flesh. But one thing that the church did not debate on was what constitutes a church. And it wasn't until 1,300 years after Jesus was on the scene that anybody even wrote a book on the church. And so the church has kind of always been um, put to the back burner, in a sense, for people really understanding what it was. And so I want to challenge you, and I want to ask you, what place does the church have in your life? As elders, our prayer is that God would elevate it in your heart. He would give you a passion for his church. We've been praying for a passion for his church as he has a passion for his church. As we study the doctrine of the church, the truth of what the church is, it's of the utmost importance. One man says that's because it's the most visible part of Christian theology. You can literally look at the church of God and understand what the scriptures have to say, what God's plan of redemption is, who he is. You can get all that from a healthy, gospel-centered church. And that church's understand of the church, understanding of the church, is vitally connected to every other part of it, all of its ministries, all of its worship, all of its purpose, all of its mission. One man said that Christ's work is the church's foundation. 
And then Christ's work continues in the church. The fullness of the mystery of God in redemption is disclosed among the people of God. Mark Deaver, one of the books I've been reading, great resource for me this week, said that the church arises only from the gospel, only from the good news of God and his redemption. And a distorted church usually coincides with a distorted gospel. So as we strengthen ourselves in the church, we want to strengthen ourselves in the gospel. The two are synonymous. But for some of you, a button that might be pushed right now is that it is a, it is a gross immaturity. If you think that you can maintain growth as a Christian apart from life together with the people of God in the church, that view that you have is going to be challenged over the next 10 weeks. And I encourage you to, to keep coming to hear why. Is this just Rory's opinion? Is it the doctrine of Calvary Chapel? Or is this something that's biblical? Something that we can stake our, you know, uh, stake our life on? There's an utter lack of care for the church in American culture. We've even witnessed it within our church in the last year. A handful of individuals that we know and love that, that have a poor ecclesiology. And have even gone to a no church uh, type belief system. And we would say that's it's not biblical. It's not right. Perhaps this disinterest in understanding the church results from the understanding that the church itself is not necessary for salvation. Amen, right? We're saved by grace uh, through faith alone. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But Cyprian who was a bishop of Carthage back in like the 300s, he was a martyr for Christ, said this. Ready for your button to be pushed? No one can have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. Did you get that? No one can have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. And later on, John Calvin would add to that to say, for there is no other way to enter into this life unless this mother conceive us in her womb, give us birth, nourish us at her breast, and lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance until putting off mortal flesh, we become like the angels. And you know what? A lot of people would argue with that sentiment today. We don't need the church. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And one preacher made the argument, yeah, that's like saying, you know, that a mother doesn't have to hold her child. It's not a have to thing, people. This is a get to thing. This is something that is wonderful that God has created for us. That same man, Cyprian, and that man, Calvin, that said that the church is our, or that the God's our father, the church is, is like our mother nurturing us and taking us to the father. They would have sung that hymn from the beginning of today's lesson that Timothy Dwight penned, and they would have sang it with boldness and with passion, and they would have said with great enthusiasm, for her, my tears will fall. They would have sung out, for her, my prayers will ascend to her, my cares and toils will be given until there are cares and toils no more. Is there one person in this church that has that type of passion for the church? That we would cry for Calvary Chapel of Crick County. That we would beg for our brothers and sisters in this church. That we would actually set a timer on our clock for 9.30 on my Sunday night to pray for a guy that could be hung this week over in Iran? Yes! This is his church. Saeed is part of it. His Boise wife, Nagma, is part of it. And I will toil and plead for them until there will be no more toiling and pleading. And yet there's this lack of care. There's this disinterest. The church is a necessary evil. And some have believed it's come from clear back in the Roman Catholic days, uh, when they had the Vatican Council, the second one at that, 
where they recognize that a nominally competent adult is not required to self-consciously participate in the church for salvation. I like that. If you're competent, you don't have to go to church to be saved. Anyone competent here? I'm not sure that I am, right? Okay, so that's what they said. You don't have to go to church to be saved. And we would say salvation is by grace through faith alone. And the Protestant ref- or in the Protestant movement, which we are a part of, stresses salvation by faith alone. And so that seems to make the church have even a less place in our admiration, even a less place in our passions. And yet that should not be the result of salvation by grace through faith alone. John Stott, one of my favorite English preachers, said that the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. And you need to know that. The church isn't a mistake. The church isn't something that would also be a good idea. The church is something that God has had planned since the very beginning of time. It's a divine forethought, not afterthought. It was John Calvin who said, if we do not prefer the church to all other objects of our interest, we are unworthy of being counted among her members. And one of our friends from Portland, Artaxerdia, uh, preaches up there on Western Seminary, and he's a professor as well. He said, perhaps the simplest way to put it is that passion for the church is something that is distinctly and unequivocally Christian. If you're a Christian, God will work in you a passion for the church. Well, I don't have one, so I must not be a Christian. Hey, praise God, you're here right now, and he's brought you to his church series to work in you a passion for the church. Maybe you don't have a passion for the church because of a lack of knowledge, a lack of Bible teaching. And he in his sovereignty and in his grace and in his compassion is saying, hey, come and love the things that I love. Come and love the things that I love. So as we talk about the church, there's a few things to look at. Some marks of the church. First of all, the universal church. The universal church. Church That speaks of all Christians all around the world from different periods in history, different skin colors, different languages, different backgrounds. They love Jesus. That's the universal church. Saeed, part of the universal church. All right. Uh, I was thinking of Corey uh, this morning, uh, Corey Angle, and a brother from our church. He's over driving a truck in South Dakota, and part of the universal church, even over there in uh, Godforsaken South Dakota. No, I'm kidding. Um, I've just heard stories. <laughs> Language, styles, cultures, those things vary. Amen. Praise God for the universal church. But then it's narrowed down and it's funneled down, and we see it clearly in the book of Acts and all of the epistles to the local church. All right, the local church. Uh, Mark Driscoll, Gary Brashears came up with a great definition, biblically centered, saying that the local church is a community of regenerate believers, that they're born again, who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. It goes on. In obedience to the scriptures, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of communion and baptism, are unified by the Spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scatter to fulfill the Great Commission as missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. It's a pretty good working definition of what the church is. We'll dive into those, uh, each one of those things a little bit today. So we have the universal church, then the local church, that in obedience to the scripture, they gather together locally. There's leadership over them that's accountable to them. They're preaching the word. They're worshiping the Lord. They're loving each other. They're observing the ordinances of God, communion and baptism. They're uh, they're fulfilling the great commission by going into the world and making disciples. Then we have, the and, and this isn't in contrast to that, but also known, is the visible church, all right? Well, we can see tangibly, you know, go to a Michael W. Smith concert, you know, and there's the visible church all gathered, worshiping in a 
nasally pitch. You know, just kidding. I love Michael W. Smith. Go <laughs> West, young man. Okay. There was 1993 coming out again. Um, you know, uh, or, or here, visible, right? Like, here's the church, right? Visible. And then we have the invisible. Now, the difference is only the Lord knows within the visible church who's actually part of the church. Only the Lord knows those that are here, for instance, who've actually surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus. That's big. And received by faith his sacrifice of atonement for their sins. They've been justified and forgiven of their sins. Jesus is no fan of religion. He condemns it sternly in Matthew chapter 23. We're not talking about people that are Americans. We're not talking about people that grew up in the church. We're not talking about people whose grandparents were deacons and deaconesses in the Methodist church. You know, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who've been born again between them and the Lord alone. And we don't know that. Only the Lord knows. The visible church and the invisible church. Everybody who goes to church is not a Christian. And yet, everybody who's a Christian will go to church. And that doesn't mean that church. Doesn't mean within the four walls. Could be home fellowships. Could be gatherings of various sorts. Not what we're getting into right now. But you will have a passion to go and to be part of the gathering of true believers for all of eternity. It's been placed in us by the Holy Spirit. Christianity is not just about church attendance. It has been preached so much and whittled down to that now it's Christianity is not even about church attendance. And we've gone too far. We're erring in our ecclesiology now there's the gathered and scattered form of the church. Here we are, gathered together. I'll say amen in about 25 minutes, all right? Uh, and boom, you're out, gathered and scattered, like a family. We're a family when we're home for dinner together, family reunion, watching Full House on TV, 1995 again, okay. Uh, and then we go to work, and then we go to this, and, but we're still a family, whether we're gathered together or we're scattered. It's super important to define what constitutes a Christian church, especially in a day and age where there are cults all around us. And there are cults that call themselves churches. There are cults with great names on their churches, like Jesus Christ or the saints. There are cults that have, you know, Episcopal there are cults that may even have a Calvary in their name, all right? And so we need to be very aware of what the Bible says a, a true church is. There's nut jobs out there that appoint themselves as prophets and as pastors and, and that have their own gatherings. And we've got to use the discernment of the Holy Spirit and test everything according to the word. One of the most famous Protestant definitions came from John Calvin on what the church is, who said, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there is not to be doubted a church of God in existence. So eight things real quick, eight points on the church. Some of these are going to be actual weeks that we'll devote, that we'll devote to uh, in the next uh, weeks to come. Uh, first of all, regeneration. All right, a big mark of the church, if you're a part of the church, you must be born again. All right, we're going to close with that today. Regeneration, you need to be a Christian. Secondly, a church must have qualified leadership leading it, biblical leaders. All right, uh, there's going to be a whole week given over to elders, pastors, bishops, deacons, uh, and, and looking at what qualified leadership is. There's the gathering together or the ecclesia. I totally butchered it. Ecclesia. Ecclesia. There you go. Emphasis on the right syllable, right? Um, ecclesia uh, is the gathering. And we're going to do a whole study during this, these weeks on why do we need to come together? What's all the hubbub about, bub, right? Uh, we're going to do a week on that. 
assembling together. As one man said, the church regularly gathers to hear, hear God's words rightly preached and to respond in worshipful ways. The sacraments of communion and baptism will be in, uh, in obedient use. There will be unity within the spirit. And within that unity and fellowshipping with each other, we are going to be laying our lives down in service and loving one another intentionally. And it's got to be intentional because we're not just going to do it. All right? It's not going to be some great afterthought. We've got to be intentional about serving and loving one another. There will be a whole teaching on that. Uh, there will be a teaching on obedience to the Great Commission and having a care in our heart about some of Jesus' last words while he was on the earth when he said, go, go and make disciples. The church is a body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him together and by serving him in this world. And so because a right definition is so important for the church, because of all the heresy that's out there, and even more so that God's glory would really fully be shining in the way that he desires it to and the way that he's worthy of it uh, to shine, um, there was a council uh, back in the, uh, let's see, what was it? I had the date written down here. Uh, in 381 AD, called the Nicene-Constantinople Council. And they came up with a creed. They came up, this is something that we die for. This is truth. So the Nicene Creed would end up quoting and saying that there is one holy, universal, and apostolic church. All right? We're going to pull those four attributes apart really quick this morning that the church said this is important from the from the scriptures we affirm that there is one holy universal apostolic church first of all there's one all right now that one literally means unity it's what it's speaking about christians have been known for their unity all throughout the New Testament, in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 32, when the church was young, everybody had all things in common, and nobody said that anything that was theirs was their own. This is mine. No, but they distributed as anybody had need. They had a communal living environment then. There was unity. You know, that went on later on in Ephesians, where Paul would say there's one body, one Spirit, you were called in one hope of your calling. Last week, we looked at Galatians chapter 3, where uh, there's not Jew, there's not Greek, there's not male or female or slave or free. Doesn't matter your skin color. When we're in Jesus, we are unified. We are one. We are equal in value. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. There's unity there. Having the same love, the same joy, the same mind. Jesus says in John chapter 10 that there's one flock and one shepherd. And Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, that long prayer of Jesus, he prayed for all of his followers to be one. So there's one holy, all right, so this is the second part of this uh, creed. Holy speaks of being set apart. And we're saying today, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You might not even know what that means. How can I sing it if I don't know what it means? It means that God is set apart. He's the one and only. There's none like him. There's all these others. There's all these other things. And here is God in a class set apart all by himself. And you know what? Jesus says, be holy as I am holy. The church is to be set apart, is to be pure, is to be sanctified and, and set apart from the world. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, we read of this holiness in the church that Jesus presents the church to himself, not having spot, look at uh, towards the uh, next verse there, or down at verse 27, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She'd be holy and without blemish. And so this one church is pure and spotless. Jesus is in the process of like a, a holy launderer, just cleansing us, making us clean. The Lord is daily at the work of smoothing out the wrinkles and, and cleansing out the splotches. 
And, and we get the idea that it's not done yet. He's continually setting us apart till we see him face to face. And you can be sure that a church that succumbs to evil and that bows the knee to wickedness will bomb miserably. There is one holy church, all right? Now, the next uh, attribute in the Nicene Creed is that this church, gathering from the scriptures, it is universal. It's a universal church that, you know, God is the Lord of all the earth. He's the king of the ages, the alpha from the beginning, the omega to the end, and everything in between. Ignatius of uh, Antioch wrote a letter to the Smyrnan church, just like Jesus did in the book of Revelation. And he stated in uh, the second century AD, where Jesus Christ is, there is the universal church. All right, praise God, we as Calvary Chapel are part of that universal church. In Revelation chapter 5 verse 9, this song that the elders sing before the throne of God, uh, they close their song saying, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, we've been redeemed by your blood. Tribes, different languages, different sizes of earrings and holes that you poke in your ears, you know, different nations and governmental systems. Man, he, he brings us together in universal, uh, universality. Universalism, it sounds a little weird. Um, then uh, the ap apostolic attribute that the Nicene Creed states. Apostolic speaks of the apostles teaching rather than the men themselves being what's important. As you read in Acts chapter 2, the church continued daily in the apostles' doctrine and studying the word of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says that uh, the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And that's true. And we kind of shy away from that verse in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus says, Peter, upon this Peter, I will build my church. And we're like, oh, the Catholics totally abused that. He didn't mean Peter. He meant pebble and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, he said in Aramaic, hey, Rocky, upon this rock, I will build my church. And you know what? Peter was a church leader. He was a, a guy that led, even it was a lead among equals. Uh, you see him standing up. You see him getting the ball rolling in situations. Uh, and yet there was never in the New Testament any unhealthy um, ordaining on him as if he's like the final authority and speaks ex capitra or whatever, you know. Uh, none of that's in the New Testament. But upon the apostles and really their doctrine, uh, the church is built. Edmund Clowney put it very well, to compromise the authority of the scripture is to destroy the apostolic foundation of the church. And so that's one thing that we do regularly at this church. We have preached the apostles' doctrine. We spend a lot of time in the word, plowing straight lines through it diligently, as Paul tells Timothy. We preach the Christ-centered word regularly, consistently, faithfully, whether it's in season or out of season, whether we're really feeling like it when I wake up on a Sunday morning or not. We're faithful to preach the apostolic truth. In 1 Timothy 3.15 Paul would tell Timothy, the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Only with the apostles' teaching can the church be this pillar. R.L. O'Manson said to claim that the church is apostolic is not to assert a direct line of succession through the specific individuals. Peter touched so-and-so, so-and-so touched so-and-so, so-and-so touched so-and-so. And then here we have a dude down here, you know, uh, on Main Street that, you know, somehow has touched Peter. Um, that's not what they're referring to. It's to recognize that the message and the mission of the apostles, as mediated through Scripture, must be that of the whole church. And so that message of the apostles, we strive to make the message of this church. And so four attributes of the Nicene Creed are a reflection of God's attributes. He is uh, a God of unity, a God of holiness, of immensity, of eternality, and of truthfulness. Much to say on that. Went a little long first service, so I'm learning to crop things out a little bit. Uh, how did the church begin? Aren't you glad you come to second service? <laughs> how did the church begin? The church is not a human invention, 
all right? Uh, it's actually a divine institution. You know, a lot of organizations owe their establishment to members, like some kind of a rotary club or the Elks or the Eagles. But we're going to see in the word we have even much more dignity and worth than these random organizations. The church is not an organization. It's an organism, all right? It's a living, breathing, moving uh, hands and feet and the body of Christ uh, touching and demonstrating Christ uh, to this world. Uh, the church doesn't owe its origin to man, but owes it to God. The church is no new thing. Even in the New Testament, we see the church foreshadowed in the nation of Israel. You know, and Jesus himself doesn't regard the church as something dissociated from everything that came before it. And neither did Peter. We'll get to 1 Peter in just a second. You know, if you, as you look in the Old Testament, God calls Israel some really unique things. They're his people, right? And he has some beautiful love language towards them. Speaking of intimacy with this group of people, in the Old Testament, Israel is called God's son, his spouse, the apple of his eye, his vine, his flock. And it's through these names that God foreshadowed the work that he would eventually do through the church as Israel were supposed to be missionaries, even to the Gentiles, that the Gentiles could be part of God's redemptive will. And yet they missed that mark, and God's not done with them. We studied that in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. God's not done with Israel. One day, all Israel will be saved. But there's this beautiful connection between the New Testament gathering of believers for all time called the ecclesia, the ecclesia, the, the church, and the Old Testament, kahal, which is the gathering of the assembly of Israel, and this beautiful um, unity of what God desired to do throughout all of history. There's a wonderful connection between the assembly of God and the assembly of the church in the New Testament. Let's just quickly look at 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. Peter says, you, okay, so to the church, this is to you guys today, you are a chosen generation or a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And so there's these very interesting uh, words that are used in descriptions to the church that went to Israel and, and still go to Israel. And one day we'll see that in, in completion. But we see there a chosen generation. That's special. God has chosen the church and he's made them a royal priesthood. Now, I realize right now, especially some of you youngins, you know, you're just like, Big stinking deal. Royal priesthood. I got things to be doing right now. You know, may the Lord take us from our fast food, Xbox, Comcast, digital cable, whatever, you know, the minds that we've got and help us to understand what Peter is saying to us here is a big deal. It was a big deal then and it is a big deal now in 2013. You, Christian, are part of the royal priesthood you belong to the king of all kings you have the task of serving the king you are the king's priest and that gives to us unbelievable radical dignity and worth the government that romans tells us in chapter 13 that's been established by god is never called the royal priesthood the family that's established by God is never called the royal priesthood. The church established by God is a royal priesthood. That gives it great dignity, great value, great worth. It shows us its importance. Peter says that we are a holy nation. You go clear back to the days of Israel in Exodus chapter 13. We still live in the days of Israel. Uh, but back in uh, Exodus 13, God said, you will be a kingdom of priests. You'll be a holy 
nation, at the very beginning of the outset of their relationship, coming out of Egypt, God wanted them to be mindful of how he regards them. They're a kingdom of priests. They're a holy nation. And Deuteronomy uses that phrase often. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. Now, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who was taught by Jesus of what the church is supposed to be, teaches us and says, you Gentiles in Crook County who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, you are a holy nation set apart from this world. We get really, really pumped about the stars and stripes and one nation under God. When really here we are, we are one nation for God. Like nobody else, no other people on this planet have this incredible calling and election. But those who are saved, those that are Christians. What Peter is trying to say is that we exist as the church for him. Okay? And we have gotten messed up in our American mindset that this life is for me, this church is for me, and that transfers everything to consumer Christianity. One of the problems in the church we're going to address in the weeks to come, and in our consumer Christianity where everything's about me, you better meet my needs, you better play the music that fits my needs, you better bow down and serve me the way I want to be served, and if you mess up, I'm out of here, buddy. And we treat the church like a restaurant that's just come into town that, well, maybe I'll put you a like on Facebook or, you know, check in at Foursquare and say it was. No, that's not the church. You're greatly misinformed. The church has much more value, much more dignity, does not exist for your interest, but for his interests. We are a priesthood to serve him. We are his holy nation for him. We get that the weeks to come, that we exist to glorify him. But if the church is viewed as an organization and it's here to meet my needs, we're going to resort to the sin of consumerism, treating the church like a business. We're his own special people, Peter says. The very own possession of God, it stresses his ownership. He has acquired us. He possesses us. God referred to Israel as the apple of his eye, his flock, his vineyard, his nation. God refers to the church as his flock, the branches, a nation, a priesthood, the bride, the body, metaphors that are awesome that we're going to look at in the weeks to come. At the very least, as you look at Israel and God's plan for the church through history, It's got to be said that God God consistently had a plan to glorify himself through groups of people that would gather together and would love him and worship him, and he would call them his own. Edmund Clowney wrote a book called The Church, and one man said, this is the greatest introductory book you can go to when studying the church. And Clowney wrote, the story of the church begins with Israel, the Old Testament people of God. As we get into this study of who and what is the church, we've got to ask, whose church is it? Whose church is it? Is it Rory's church? Hey, I'd like to come to your church. Is it Kevin or Chad's church, the elders' church? It's not. Is it the greatest donors' church here? I've given the most. This is mine. It's not yours either. Whose church is it? Well, if you look at Matthew chapter 16, Verse 18, you have the first mentioning of the church in the New Testament, where Jesus speaks of the church. And it's, um, you'll remember that the boys and Jesus were retreating up at Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus kind of catechizes them. He asks them a question. He says, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And so Peter, speaking for the guys, says, well, some say that you are John the Baptist. Herod actually said that. Like, you're John the Baptist reincarnated or come back from the dead to get me. You know, some people say that you're Elijah. Some people say that you're Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Some say that you're uh, one of the other prophets. And Jesus looks at them and says, well, who do you say that I am? One of the most important questions in the Bible, it's been said that how you answer that question will determine where you spend all of eternity. Because even people who were following Jesus and had an intimate knowledge of Jesus would would say, there's something radical about you. There's something godly about you. You're like a prophet, man. Like, look at these healings. You're like Elijah. I mean, that guy was awesome. Like Elisha. 
And yet they wouldn't bow the knee to him as Savior. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been praying for for thousands of years. And you're right here in Caesarea Philippi with me. And then he goes on to say, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You didn't learn this from mom and dad or growing up in a Christian home. As great as those things are, you learn this from God. Jesus would say, no man comes to me unless the father draws him. It was the Lord that showed him, this guy is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the savior of the world. And not only that, he's the son of God. He's God. And then he says, Blessed are you, and he says uh, there in verse 18, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this Peter, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against us. In the very first mentioning of the church in the New Testament, Jesus says, it's my church. He also says in the first mentioning of the church, I will build it. I will build it. In Revelation, you see him walking among the churches. He's in the midst of the churches, and I will build it. It's Jesus's. He's the architect. He's the builder. It's been said that the value of the object increases in direct proportion to the significance of the person to whom it belongs. So who owns this thing? It's really valuable. Well, Jesus owns it. And how did he acquire it? How did he purchase it? Did he get some greenbacks out, some C notes, some gold or some silver? How did he purchase the church? Who gives him the right to say that it's his? He purchased it with his blood. It's also been said you can gauge the value of something by how much you'd be willing to pay for it. Now, the idea of who owns it making it valuable. You know, if, if a man came out on Craigslist and said, hey, I have got this antique, actually it's a, it's a reconstructed, remodeled um, Civil War saddle. What will you give me for it? Some of you would say, I wouldn't give you nothing for that. I don't need a Civil War saddle. And some of you say, we're in Bradville. Those are great for decorating, things like that. I'll give you 100 bucks, 200 bucks. Then you find out that it's the saddle that was used by Kevin Costner in Dances with Wolves and Kevin Costner's rear end sat in it and all of a sudden the price goes up exponentially. Now I'm not trying to be sick or weird. I watched an episode of Pawn Stars and they were like, well, how much is this worth? Oh, Kevin Costner sat in it. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Who owned this saddle? Makes it worth a lot. How much would you pay for a baseball card? Me, nothing. I have no desire for baseball cards. Aaron Mapes, who's got like a whole storage unit with about six billion baseball cards in it. I don't think Stephanie would let him spend any money. But was uh, looking this week, and uh, $2.5 million, I'm sorry, $1.2 million plus a 15% buyer's fee was paid to acquire the T206 Honus Wagner, I don't even know who he is, baseball card that was put out by the American Tobacco Company. $1.2 million. People are starving out there. But that value of that card is determined by how much people are willing to pay for it. Little piece of paper. If you had $2.5 million, what would you, I'd go buy an island or something for my own government, you know. The biggest eBay bid that was ever bid was $2.5 million to have lunch with Warren Buffett. Lunch with Warren Buffett, $2.5 million. Has some value to it. You can't argue with that. Well, how valuable is the church? Is it okay to just have an uh, attitude about the church? To be careless about the church? Well, what was the purchase price for the church? That'll gauge its value for us. The purchase price was his own blood. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ the groom loved the church, his bride, and he gave himself 
for her. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 says, You know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. That's not what Jesus bought the church with. But with the precious blood of Christ. It's precious. And if the church was purchased with the precious blood of Christ, what does that make it? Priceless. Precious. 1 Corinthians verse six, chapter 6, verse 19. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? You have from God. You are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. If you have an attitude that this is your life, you know, John Bon Jovi, it's my life, it's now or never. I ain't gonna live forever. Finally, we're back in the 2000s. Um, my metaphors here. It's not your life. Not if you're in Christ. You are not your own. You've been purchased. You are his. Later on in the next chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he reminds the Corinthians again, you were bought at a price. And in Acts chapter 20, Paul tells a bunch of pastors that they need to shepherd the church of God because it's so valuable. He purchased it with his own blood. The church is incredibly valued and precious because it's a personal possession of Jesus Christ. It's his church. He founded it. He purchased it. He intimately identifies himself with it. He sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in it. It is the chief instrument of glorifying God in the world. It displays God, and we ought to love it. We want to love the things that Jesus loves. It's one of the ways we show him we love him. You know, you guys that are into bow hunting and everything, and you got married, and you're like, hey, honey, how about we go hunting together, right? My wife, never, all right? Some of yours, maybe. All of a sudden, they come home, they've got a pink compound bow, you know? They're wearing deer mist or whatever you call that stuff, you know? They are smelling great, and she wants to go hunting. That would tell you, you really love me. You really, really love me. We can demonstrate our love for Jesus by upping the ante and letting him work in us a deep love and passion for his church. John Huss was a 15th century Czech reformer, and he said this, Every earthly pilgrim ought faithfully to love Jesus Christ the Lord, the bridegroom of that church, and also the church herself, his bride. Do you love the church the gathering together of those who believe in him? Do you love them? Two marks of a Christian, love Jesus and love people. You cannot say you love Jesus, John tells us. You cannot say you love Jesus and hate your brother. The opposite of that, you gotta love your brother. We get to love our brothers. Next week, we're gonna look at the mission and the purpose of the church. What should the church be doing? We'll find that its main aim, its main target is to glorify God. But before we close today, the question so far, uh, this church that I'm supposed to be passionate about, Rory, how do I get in? How do I get in? Where do I sign up? How do I become a member? I get it. I'm supposed to be passionate for this. I want to start. And the first thing you need to know today is that you need to be a Christian. You need to be born again. And your membership within the church, universal, the universal and the visible church, that only God knows who's a Christian, your membership is not a matter of external attachments. How much you give, how big of a check you cut. If you've been even dipped in the waters, it doesn't matter if you've taken communion a thousand times. These external things you're an American, you've got a heritage, whatever it might be, you can name it. Your hope needs to be built on a spiritual union with Christ. In the Old Testament, we're seeing that you can be given a new heart. In the New Testament, the phrase is born again. Jesus tells Nicodemus in the middle of the night, unless you're born again, unless you're regenerate, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And he told that to the most religious man in Israel, one of them, Nicodemus, a Pharisee. 
So how do you get in? First of all, in your regeneration, you need to consider what you were. Maybe what you are right now as I'm speaking to you. Ephesians chapter 2. You guys have heard of the Romans road of salvation where we can lay out the plan of salvation in Romans. Let's look at it in Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 1, 3. It says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So if you aren't born again, or if you came through those doors and you weren't born again, what are you? You're doomed. You're a child of wrath. And we just read you, your life is about serving your passion, your lust. You're an alien, a sojourner, sojourner disconnected from the family of God. There's a giant wall of separation. And strive as you may, you will never break down that wall between you and God. But he can, and he did. And so not only do you need to consider what you are or were, that you are a sinner, doomed for hell, a child of wrath. Right now, consider what he did. Ephesians 2.13, and our Ephesians road of salvation, says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How beautiful is the blood of Jesus? How precious is it? It's something that brings us back and near to him. Those of you that are aliens, sojourners, vagabonds, he brings near even today. Wants to bring you into the church, into this body, this gathering of believers that love him and know him and are known by him. Consider what he did. He shed his blood for you. Consider what you would be now. If you would rest in what he's done for you, if you would rest in what his blood has accomplished. In chapter 2, verse 6 of Ephesians, we read, He's raised us up together. He's made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So what is he doing now, or what would he be doing now if you would surrender to him? You would be seated in heavenly places in Christ. He would prepare you, verse 7 says, for a show and tell. He would show you off, proud of you, proud of what he's accomplished through you. In chapter 2, verse 10, we read that we are his workmanship, and the word is poema. We are his poem. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. And this is my plea to you today. As it says, in him you trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel, that means good news. The good news of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Today you've come in here and you've, just on a small level, your eyes have been able to be opened to God's plan for the church. It's huge, it's awesome, it's valuable, he loves it, it's his, he's purchased it. He's got great mission and purpose for it. And you can be brought into the church today. Not by deeds that you've done or works that you've labored, not by sweat, not by toil, but by trusting in him today. After you've heard this word of truth, you can believe in him. And as you believe in him and just rest, it's no work that you're doing. You're just surrendering. You're just resting in what he's done. He will seal you with the Holy Spirit of promise. God himself will come and seal your heart and guarantee your salvation, salvation from sin, from death, from hell, from yourself, and for him, for eternity, for paradise, for fellowship with God. And guys, it is so important that you understand that what I am saying right now is I am not asking you if you have gone to church over a hundred times in your life. Because to everybody else, they'd be like, wow, a hundred times, that's a lot. Doesn't matter. A thousand times, doesn't matter. 
Doesn't matter your external heritage. Doesn't matter if dad was a pastor. Doesn't matter even if you're involved in some level of serving here at this church. It's not what saves you. But it's through a spiritual union with Jesus Christ. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.